0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. In this month's programme, we get the latest on the COVID-19 crisis and how farming communities are coping with that. We speak to IFAD's President, Gilbert Hongbu. Then we take a look at the world of livestock farming. What are the hot issues and where are the innovations coming from? All that with Antonio Rota. Plus, we'll be visiting livestock projects in Kenya with Gio Rubo in Nairobi. Also, we'll be talking to the boss of the Four Per Thousand initiative, Paul Liu. He talks about how healthy soils can act as a carbon sink. Then we have Agtech startup Indigo's lead in Europe, George Guris, with news on how they help farmers earn money through better soil management and carbon credits. Plus, we'll be hearing from IFAD's projects across Asia and how they're dealing with the COVID-19 situation. Reports from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Remember, we also have Arabic, French and Spanish versions of this podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. Infection rates in many of the countries first affected by the COVID-19 pandemic are falling, but in the absence of a cure or a vaccine, the world is braced for further outbreaks. The impact on rural communities in developing countries has been hard, not only due to the medical emergency, but also because of the fallout in terms of economic slowdown and stagnation. At IFAD, we've established the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility through which COVID-19 response grants will be financed. At the same time, IFAD has already made considerable progress in responding to the pandemic through repurposing of funds through existing projects. I spoke to IFAD's president, Gilbert Hongbu. Considering IFAD's unique position to check in on rural communities around the world, I asked what impacts he's noted related to COVID-19 and what impacts he expects moving forward.
1: You can see that... uh I mean, for me, it is fascinating within weeks um, to have a request from 65, 70 countries of help. You know, it tells you the importance of IFAD. And for the colleagues who so have been able to quickly repurpose uh, our ongoing activities, uh, that this was really um, fascinating. You could see the the, the relief on, you know, when talk to the ministers or our counterpart, et cetera, and you can also maybe uh, see some what I call on the surface impact. The real impact, apart from the short term, it will take time. It will take time. Um, then we just, of course, a year from now we will maybe have a better assessment of uh, what the reports have, uh, have have given. Obviously, I am also very mindful uh, that you know all of that does not affect. Uh, the global quality of our delivery is a is a, is a concern that um, sometimes i uh, i have because you know sometimes when you want to do good and you're trying to speed up and there's you know a thin line between uh, speed and uh, you know, haste.
0: And part of what IFAD has done since the COVID 19 crisis has been the launch of the facility. Um, how has that been received so far?
1: The facility, um, by the way, yesterday Canada announced uh, 6 million, and uh, really an opportunity for me again to express our. Thanks to 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 Canada, the the facility has been quite very very received, particularly by the countries that uh, the the borrowing countries that are affected by COVID, and to the point where I'm concerned that uh, the expectation may not be met on that. The initial investment that we put through our um, grant um, resources, the 40 million, um, now has been uh, allocated and to focus on those countries that are. Are most affected with less um, internal capacity um, financial capacity or, or institutional capacity and etc and then so what we 're going to do we have also in a positive discussion in some countries, including Canada that uh, announced it yesterday, others we are it's in the making. Of course, until it's fully done, I don't take it for granted, but I hope very soon that in the coming days and weeks, we will have other announcements on that. So that will help us to have a second allocation of um, resources.
0: How in in other ways has IFAD changed its operations in the face of COVID-19?
1: So far, I mean, uh, a bit of change are still also to come, as particularly in the in the, in the context of uh, if the replenishment, uh, if a uh, 12 on, on on that. Our colleagues uh, have been able to tele working on their project management and uh, get in touch with the uh, program implementation, the project implementation uh, staff all of those things, Um, so you can see that uh, if you're very well organized from IT perspective, from the digital perspective, you can see it functioning. What has been, in my mind, uh, less um, effective, that you can't replace it by teleworking, is the supervision missions uh, to go and see completed on the ground because people on the ground themselves they need to quarantine themselves or they need to social distancing themselves etc that has been not necessarily possible so we will need to catch up in my mind on, uh, on that
0: and a lot of organisations are talking about the, the changes that they've experienced in this period and what they'll be taking forward after the pandemic passes as, as you look to the future as you look to the, the post-pandemic world um, may it come sooner rather than later. Um, how do you think we would change what IFAT is doing and how it doesn't?
1: There's several things that I can say on, uh, on that. First of all, for me, the, obviously the best case scenario is to have a, a vaccine as quick as possible so we'll all be vaccinated. And at least in as much as COVID is concerned, we can turn the page. Um, but whether you turn the page, the other scenario, which is less, Maybe it's more uh, more likely to happen, but less of what I hope for is to just learn to live with COVID. I mean, that it may not go, it may not go, uh, and so we just have to learn to live with it. I mean, um, it's not the only uh, deadly uh, virus that is known. So, others who have learned to live with it, so we could also do that, but it's always better when you have a vaccine, right? That being said, whether you have a vaccine or not, whether it's totally gone or you have to learn to live with it. One thing is for sure, what COVID has, is teaching us is, you know, we need to build much more, general speaking, our resilience to different type of shocks in our daily life. And when you think about it, that applied to all countries. If today what COVID has shown is that there's no country in the world that could could tag itself that its social protection systems was not shaken. You know, it has been shaken everywhere. So it, it tells you that we need to do. Obviously, it also means that that almost uh, tsunami um, was, you know, stronger in countries that, to start with, have very less capacity, very less institutional setup on that. So for me, it's not too much. Obviously, the health dimension is also that. What's what thing? the uniqueness about the health? You know, it doesn't matter your social class. It doesn't matter where you are, etc. You know, you can, of course, some rich people can have... Prevent, put themselves in a situation that kind of uh, protect them from some diseases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But globally, health, everybody has the same concern <laughs> on that. So my point here is that it's not necessarily because of the health, but today's health tomorrow it can be another shock which may not be health-related. So we need to build the resilience for the, the, the rural communities. And we have been talking about resilience for, a, for for a while. Now it really has to be systemic, and and that the resilience can be through nutrition, through um, food security um, scheme that a country can know how to count on on their own reserve. Resilience also means that at the rural level, um, that what are the the basic minimum services, uh, minimum. Um, service delivery that is there. It's not just only the what we do in IFAD. You really have to look at that for the rural life, the rural transformation. So meaning that, um, for example, countries that are devastated by malaria, you know, you have to make sure that at least in the community can have access to malaria pill. It doesn't matter if they have money or not. Uh, you have to uh, make sure that uh, the you know the the women in the rural area. Have a, 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 a medical center, what is a hospital or a middle center where basic services, including giving birth, can be provided on, on that. So, that resilience, that social protection um, is what is going to be here. My last point on that it doesn't matter how you're going to turn it, um, how COVID will end up. And, and you can see the reaction the, in the world, which I find fascinating. The issue about the divide, I mean, the gap between the have and the have not. It seems to me that the gap will always exist, you know, in the whole world uh, history, that's always there. But how big, how deep or high is that gap is going to be another issue that at the policy level, we need to come back. So I'm expecting that to be also one of the big things after COVID, if
0: there is after COVID. That was IFAD's president, Gilbert Hongbo. You can hear that interview in Arabic, French or Spanish at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Later in the programme, we have reports on how IFAD projects are adapting in Afghanistan, Pakistan and China. But next, we have the latest from the world of livestock. To excuse the pun, livestock is becoming something of a hot potato. There doesn't seem to be a week go by when meat isn't in the headlines. IFAD supports small farmers in developing countries make the most of their livestock by protecting animal health, boosting productivity and sustainability, and also helping to link farmers to profitable markets. Nevertheless, there's an increasing call to reduce meat consumption because of dietary and health concerns. I put that to Ifad's lead technical specialist on livestock, Antonio Rota.
2: In our part of the world, and when I say our part of the world, I refer to the northern part, the richer part, where people have the privilege to choose what they they eat, what they, they can choose what uh, what is their diet. A reduction of processed red meat in general is is uh, certainly advisable. There. There is a problem that is linked to the, the way that uh, meat, in general, is produced in a so-called uh, a developed country and is a, a system that implies an industrial, intensified system, which is not the natural way that animals should be kept. In order to go and uh, on the on the market with products cheaper and cheaper, in order to uh, you know respond to um, requests from consumer of a lean meat, etc. Sometimes or most of the time in our in our part of the world, we go for uh, animal that are not kept under welfare. Uh-huh in 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 a situation where the the animal is allowed to live a you know, in in a in a proper way they are confined they let's imagine uh, if you have seen ever seen images of bovine uh, under fattening their constraint in areas uh, they are not allowed to to graze they so the kind of meat that we put on the market is, um, let's say, leading to um, high cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. But we, we fortunately, we know that if we can produce animal in a more sustainable way, the meat is actually good for your health. Omega-3, omega-6, omega-9 are, are coming with, uh, with this product. Certainly, the price is going to be higher so this is why the advice is re- reduce the consumption, eat better, and at the end of the day, you will see that the, the, the balance at the end is that you're going perhaps to, less, to spend less for medicine and you're you, you going to enjoy for a, a better health.
0: Isn't it still the case that in the developing world, many children, women, and men do not consume enough protein? And this is why I was referring to
2: the rich part of the world, because the poor part of the world, unfortunately, include persons that cannot choose what they um, they they can eat every day. Let's remind here that there are two billion people which are not having a proper diet at global level, and. Uh, small amount of protein are making a a, a huge difference, especially for uh, pregnant women, especially for children. We know because we we have evidence that Poor, poor diets result in uh, reduced physical and cognitive development. A school feeding program in, uh, in many African countries have seen an immediate impact in terms of reduced drop-off of, of children or a higher attention at school and uh, also some biometrics measure. Uh, I mean, children are taller, are more developed, etc. So, yes, we. I, I, I. believe that livestock products, because uh, before we were referring only to uh, meat, but um, livestock product include products like uh, milk, eggs, even honey. And and you know the, these are highly nutrition, highly dense nutrition um, products that provide. Essential amino acid, essential micronutrients, which allow the development of of human body, of uh, of children, and uh, as I said, very fundamental for pregnant women.
0: Ifad's been in the business of working with smallholder farmers on livestock for more than 40 years now. What is the focus of of Ifad's work here? Uh,
2: we focused uh, initially a lot on uh, pastoralism range land management and gradually we switched uh, towards uh, value chain development so therefore focusing more on dairy production and more recently we we are paying a lot of attention on uh, small livestock production. Since inception, IFAD has invested $1 billion in livestock products. Right now, we have uh, 39 projects uh, around the world, including uh, or dealing with livestock uh, development. And uh, let's remind that we have many projects with rural finance components where people can borrow uh, money and they most of the time, they buy livestock as an investment and as, as a, a, a household asset. IFAD, um, normally our projects are focusing on building the capacity of, of uh, producers. We invest about 30% of our budget on, on that component. And then we, we uh, have uh, issues or, or component related to uh, improving pasture, improving range and improving animal health, breeding, the way we keep uh, animal. And uh, as I said, more recently, we focus on a holistic approach in, in the, the livestock development, Therefore, we look at the value chain, so we invest a lot in terms of uh, collecting, for instance, milk, processing milk, and um, supporting smallholder or cooperatives, organized smallholder and cooperatives, to sell the products on the market. Um, the, the, as, I, as I said before, there is recently a, a higher attention uh, to uh, small livestock production. And this is coming with the IFAD focus, IFAD really um, effort to concentrate on on, uh, improving nutrition, empowering women, providing job opportunity for youth, and address issues related to climate change. Small livestock is a really the livestock of the poor people, is the livestock that is kept by women, is the livestock that uh, young people can, can keep because the investment is, uh, uh, is relatively low. And by putting in place a system in which we improve the situation, and when I say that, for instance, a simple vaccination for poultry or goats can immediately improve the productivity by 30 40 50% cause we reduce mortality and also we help uh, in uh, the producers in selling their product on on uh, on the market
0: that was Antonio Rota, Livestock Specialist at IFAD. Remember, we have also Arabic, French and Spanish versions of the podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. We'll be hearing more stories from the field, the cowshed, and the chicken coop with Antonio later in the programme. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find more podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts. Coming up, we have news on livestock in Kenya when we hear from Guya Roba. Guyo Roba is a technical specialist working with IFAD in East and Southern Africa. He's been working for some years with the Borana pastoralist community in northern Kenya. The Borana traditionally kept cattle, but with climate change negatively affecting their livelihoods, they have diversified into the more hardy camels and goats. The project first started back in 2012 with support from the UK, focusing on governance issues and mapping. But since then, it's grown to work on improved water management and getting elders from the Burana community to take their seats in the official processes that manage these areas. Guyo's focus has been on improving resource governance, inclusive planning for rangelands and the management and development of communal resources. I asked him to tell me more about the area where the Burana people live.
3: Yeah, they live in typically... Uh dry land environment, which is arid and semi-arid area, um, multifunctional landscape, which is suitable for both cattle, sheep and goat, and camel. And they extend from Isiola, as I said, uh, which is very much semi-arid area uh, in in, in Garbatula, and also uh, Merti, uh, currently called Saab County. So, um, uh, but then they extend beyond that and and live in in the part of Uh, Marsabit. Definitely they occupy a landscape with different communities, the Gabra, which is predominantly camel keepers, Rendille, mostly camel keepers, but the Burana, which are cattle keepers, as I said, move all the way to Isiolo, uh, from Isiolo to Moyale uh, borderland area to southern Ethiopia.
0: So so what are the issues that, that we are working on with our partners in these areas with this community?
3: Okay, because, uh, as I say, the pastoral community that occupy vast landscape that is communally used and communally managed, so one of the central issues that I've worked in for a uh, couple of years in the past is rangeland governance, which is central issue that cut across between the Burana and also other adjacent pastoral communities. just to give you a bit of the context of the governance issue uh, over the years uh, I think post-colonial, colonial time, there are systems in place, traditional systems in place that manage this landscape uh, through reciprocal arrangement, uh, very organized system, traditionally organized, but not well documented. So what happened is that as the new institutions are being introduced by government in post-colonial time, they brought in water users association, Rangeland users association, and many other committee-driven things. So what that implies is that the new institutions are registered by the government and legally recognized, but the elders' institution that traditionally manage this land for a number of years and decades are not legally registered. So this is the, the, the issue. The issue is that the legally existing ones, which are the new ones, don't exist on the ground, while the one which are traditionally existing on the ground has no existence in the legal documents. So this particular mismatch between the legal existence and the presence on the ground Led to an open access situation where the land, range land plans are not there to, uh, planning and development in the rangelands are not done according to um, the land, uh, the land capability. Basically, it's not built on the mental map of the others. So, as a result of that, we have a governance, land tenure issue, weak institutions that enforce existing laws and regulation. And then this is now a reposed with the climate change issues, which are the new issues that come on top of the governance issues, which means is that if the lands are not well managed governed by institutions, it implies that different communities will graze in different landscapes. And this also drives conflict, apart from reducing the resilience of the communities that normally put certain land under lock and key through borehole, where they open a certain point in dry season and open another one in wet season. And that mobility and managing mobility is lost. So basically what we worked on under the project number of project in the North is to have projects that build on these key issues that I mentioned as a key pillar around how do you secure land tenure, How do you improve institutional strength? How do you improve mobility? How do you improve the capacity to plan? How do you improve the voice of the pastoralists in the development uh, processes and plan of the ga- counties? Uh, which is the new structure of local government. So in summary, we worked on strengthening the trainer through documenting the traditional rules and regulation, and putting what I call legal speak. Basically documenting it and making sure that it's in conformity with the national institutions and the constitutions, and then taking that particular um, uh, regulations that is written by a lawyer through the county assembly to be passed as a bylaw for managing the land. And that gives the elders the much-needed strength to enforce what they say. And secondly, is to bring the elders' institution and other institutions in place in the planning, in the discourses, in multi-stakeholder dialogues to improve their voices and place them centrally in the planning. And in so doing, all the plans on water development is well couched on the rent plan that originated from the mental map of the hadas the land-use dynamics, and at the same time, ensures that the water development is well balanced.
0: That was Ifad's Guyo Roba speaking to us from Nairobi in Kenya. Please go to ifad.org forward slash podcasts to hear our other podcasts. In episode nine, we heard all about how young people are dealing with COVID-19. In episode eight, we talked biodiversity and eco-friendly farming. And in episode seven, we had news from celebrity chefs, working with IFAD in Kenya and Lesotho. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future, but back to this edition. Coming up, we hear from the 4 per 1000 initiative. Human activities emit enormous amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which enhances the greenhouse effect and accelerates climate change. Every year, 30% of this CO2 is absorbed by plants, thanks to the photosynthesis process. Then, when those plants die and decompose, the living organisms of the soil, such as bacteria, fungi or earthworms, transform them into organic matter. This carbon-rich organic material is essential for human nutrition because it retains water, nitrogen and phosphorus, essential for growing plants. Global soils contain two to three times more carbon than the atmosphere. If this carbon level could be increased by 0.4%, or 4 per 1,000 parts per year, in the first 30 to 40 centimetres of soil, the annual increase of CO2 in the atmosphere would be significantly reduced. This is what the 4 per 1,000 initiative proposes – soils for food security and climate. The initiative was launched by France at the Paris Climate Summit back in 2015. Working with a cross-section of around 450 members from the public and private sector, Four Per Thousand encourages them to move towards a more productive and highly resilient agricultural system. So, how can we do this? Paul Liu, Executive Secretary of Four Per Thousand, explained we need to start from a point of preservation of areas such as peatlands, forests and some areas already under regenerative agriculture areas that are there already. But for conventional farming, including small farmers, we need to move, in some cases, to regenerative agriculture, conservation agriculture, and no tillage, to keep the CO2 in. Paul Lu tells me more. Wherever it's possible, we, we advise to go for
4: conservation agriculture. That means you avoid Tillage or plowing, so no tillage or very minimum tillage. Always have cover crop on your soil and crop rotation to avoid planting uh, wheat on wheat and wheat or maize on maize, etc. So if you apply that when it's possible, I don't. I I say where it is possible because in some uh, part of the world, according to the climate, um, it is more difficult to have good results under conservation agriculture. But in some majority of case if you develop conservation agriculture you will increase the biodiversity you will increase the the carbon content of your soil you will increase the soil health and you will increase your yield at the end by reducing drastically all the um, mineral fertilizer and all the agrochemical which is exactly what the the population also wish so for the rest of the world we have to still to find some solution i don't say what I said just now is this is the, the global solution that we have to do everywhere without any adaptation. Uh, this is a global view, of course, each situation, each place, according to the soil, according to the climate, is uh, at, has, have to be considered and the solution need to be adapted. But this is the, the main direction we have to go through
0: thanks to Paul Lou from the 4 Per Thousand initiative. And you can find out more about them by going to 4p1000.org, written numerically. More on soil coming up with AgTech startup Indigo Agriculture. Also remember, we now have the whole episode in Arabic, French and Spanish at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Ag tech startup Indigo Agriculture is on a mission to entice the world's farmers to shift to more sustainable growing techniques. In June 2019, the company launched the Teraton Initiative, a marketplace that connects farmers willing to embrace regenerative agriculture with companies that want to pay for carbon offsets. Regenerative practices include techniques such as no till farming, using cover crops, and spreading less fertiliser. Indigo is partnering with various organisations to study how much carbon each farm captures over time. At a time when many farmers are struggling financially, Indigo provides them with a new revenue stream. Teraton guarantees at least $15 per tonne of sequestered carbon. The company had expected to enrol around 1.5 million acres of farmland in the initiative within six months of its launch but farmers with more than 15 million acres expressed interest. Georg Gores is head of Indigo's operations in Europe. He explained how carbon sequestration in soil will move agriculture from being part of the problem to being part of the solution to climate change. I asked him what better soil management offers farmers. Well, there are many opportunities. I think, um, first of all,
5: when you do better soil management, what, what you would normally get is a healthier soil, which a um, stronger humus content in there. And healthier soils have the capability to be more resilient if they are under, if they are stressful situations. So they can often retain, for example, water better when there are um, dry conditions and or if you have some Blooding they absorb the water better, so the fields are more resilient. And, and with this, they, of course, help the farmer to have a more
0: reliable uh, yield. What are the breadth of measures you could recommend to a farmer? Well, in, in terms of our
5: um, Terraton initiative, what we're looking at, we, we, we have defined five regenerative active practices. Uh, one is the minimum input of uh, chemistry and synthetic fertilizer, um, the second one is uh, a good crop rotational program. There is uh, planting of cover crops. There is minimum tillage, and ideally livestock on farm. Now, if if these five practices are applied, or some of those to start with, that's where we can see that this will help, as said, to sequester um, carbon in the soil, so to be a CO two drawdown, CO two sink as a soil, um, and that's. as as I described, will then um, through the certification process um, enable the farmer to um, issue some and sell some carbon credits. So the benefit for the farmer is that they get not only paid in the future for what they produce and some of their crops, but also how they produce. And uh, that is, of course, very attractive for farmers because, as as mentioned before, they can become part of the solution rather than being part of the problem.
0: Who is it? That can qualify for, for this sort of help. Who is the, the target audience for you?
5: Yeah, in principle, conceptually, um, it is applicable. Of course, from a, from a concept point of view, in principle, for every farmer. Now, we currently start um, our program in the US, uh, and that's where we already have um, quite some farmers enrolled into the program, and we are building the first. It's the first pilot year we're running uh, right now there. And we also plan to bring this in the next wave to uh, to Europe. Um, in the midterm, I can also see that we might go into more developing markets. So I could see that to be applied somewhere in South Latin America. I could see that, in uh, certainly, uh, for example, in India and or in South Africa. But this will be later down the road. We first have to establish program, make it work, scale it, and then I think we go into other markets.
0: So looking forward, we we, we can't avoid the, the, the reality of the, the, the new normal, the post-pandemic world. How are you expecting coronavirus and the aftermath to affect your markets and, and your business?
5: The positive piece is that, look, agriculture is, of course, a system-relevant sector, and uh, people will need to eat also in the future. So we need to make sure that the food production um, remains intact and will work, so I think if I look at a midterm outlook, I don't think there will be any any negative um, midterm term um, you know impact on on agriculture. Very short term, there are some areas where there are some raised concerns where farmers might struggle to get the right helpers on the farm in the moment of harvesting specifically that's a discussion in the european context where we have a lot of people who come from other countries to as temporary workers to do uh, support harvesting now those people can't travel into the different countries currently and so short term there might be um, some implications here but uh, you know I'm, I'm pretty confident that there will be ways found to overcome that and still to secure that the, the harvesting can happen and i said i say mid term for agriculture i don't i don't think it has a um, that it will have a, a, a negative impact.
0: Looking to the future of your business, what what, what are you planning? What are the next frontiers that you, you're going to be sort of overcoming and working on? So Indigo overall, we have
5: three major um, areas where we're active in. One is in microbials, which helps the farmers um, as alternatives for the input. We have a grain marketplace, which we've launched in the US and grow in there. And then the Teraton, our carbon initiative. In the midterm, in terms of new frontiers from a European angle, as I'm responsible for our European business, we plan to launch all of those with the microbes we are already active in Europe. And as mentioned, the next thing we want to bring forward also is the pilot in in the carbon space. And we also plan to um, open the grain marketplace in in the European uh, continent in the not too distant future.
0: So um, that's the plan. Coming up, we're back talking livestock with Antonio Rota's stories from the literal field. Across the world, IFAD's projects have been recalibrating to deal with the new normal. In this month's edition of Farms Food Future, we've been checking in with projects from Afghanistan, Pakistan and all the way to China. First, to Afghanistan, and here IFAD's Community Agriculture and Livestock Project is working with the nomadic Kuchi households in the north and east of the country. I asked country program manager Chandra Samekto what we're doing to help this community.
6: We provide the support for the veterinary services, so we have a veterinary field unit, so we're working closely with the communities. So even though the, the, uh, the city is in lockdown, but our field office is still working closely with the communities. What they do is, uh, in addition to providing uh, husbandry uh, veterinary services, they also train to understand and deliver uh, education, the community-based education and campaign regarding uh, COVID-19 outbreak. So they talk closely with the communities, try to give more awareness and uh, hand out the leaflets. The project also try to adjust the way they works. So they provided it with the health and safety kits because there's no point that we support them if the community itself gets sick because of the virus. So they uh, do whatever they can get for the income. And hopefully it will not get, uh, last longer because it will be, uh, give a really bad impact for the uh, income, for the livelihood. Because if they don't have any like, income anymore, they have to start to uh, give up their assets, including their livestock, which is their main income.
0: Food prices have risen sharply in Kabul, and the lockdown is causing problems for smallholder farmers as well as nomadic communities. IFAD's community based extension workers are the key to implementing project activities in the field and community awareness raising. They're well trained to responsibly follow the activities of all the components around livestock, irrigation, etc., working at district and village level. I asked Kandra how they've changed the way they're working under the pandemic.
6: For example, if the, the farmers cannot get uh, uh, sufficient uh, inputs, and the right time, so they will miss the, the growing season. Uh, so they cannot plant uh, uh, the, at the right season, so they will miss and then they cannot produce what uh, they'll be the main income. So this uh, community-based extension workers was to make sure that the farmers get their inputs, agriculture inputs, including uh, seeds, fertilizer, and also make sure the irrigation is flowing uh, at the right time and the right amount, so they, the farmers can keep uh, produce, uh, keep the productivity high, even though at the moment they have a problem in terms access to the market. But again, the project also looks at the opportunities, also any other way to deal with the lockdown, because the government decision to limit any movement uh, within the communities. So they have to find a way how to preserve their produce so they can sell it later on when the access to market has been improved.
0: Moving swiftly across Asia, we can now drop in on our country director, Matteo Marchisio, in China. He has worked on the Yunnan Agricultural and Rural Improvement Project, or YARIP, which completed in 2018. The project area comprised 45 townships in nine counties of Yunnan Province, which lies on the border with Myanmar, Vietnam and Laos. Project activities gave special priority to ethnic minorities and women. The Zan Yi Women Embroidery Farmers Cooperative was one of the groups supported by Yarup. I asked Matteo what they've been doing differently since COVID hit so what what happened was that uh, when uh, in January this year the new coronavirus outbreak
7: uh, hit uh, the province uh, facial masks became uh, in high demand and became unavailable in markets uh, so the the ladies uh, who be, the ladies the e ladies that start uh, the started established the women embroidery cooperative uh, decided to start producing uh, handmade masks and the mask producer were disinfected, of course, and distributed to the frontline workers. And, uh, of course, uh, those masks did not fulfill the standards uh, of the medical mask, but could at least block um, the spread of some uh, droplets uh, so that the professional mask, uh, the professional medical mask, could be saved and used by medical staff uh, who were
0: fighting the epidemic. So how um, were they helped by information communication technologies? I understand that played a part. Yes,
7: the interesting part uh, uh, in what happened to, to the cooperative was that uh, uh, because of the COVID outbreak and because of the uh, restriction in movement, uh, they had an impact on, uh, on their business, in uh, their sales. What they did was to make extensive use of the new digital platforms that are spreading in China to continue their, their business during the outbreak. And uh, now that the outbreak is, uh, is uh, uh, ending, and after they have experienced the potential of the digital platform, the cooperative continue to make full use of, uh, of this platform for marketing and sales. And now their products are, are, are promoted in various online uh, marketplaces, uh, including some of the, the big giants in China, Alibaba, JD, Weibo, and so, Weibo and so on.
0: As a, as a final question, Matteo, how in general would you say are IFAD's operations in China shaping up to the new normal? What, what are the, 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 where are we right now? In China, we're a bit ahead
7: uh, compared to what's happening uh, in the rest of the world. China is now in the recovery phase. Uh, um, most of the travel restrictions of the limitations uh, that were implemented in the first couple of months of the year are now released. So uh, things are getting back to normal. What I could uh, see um, observing uh, how how the projects are faced and dealt with the, the epidemics is that uh, the activities that were um, you know, included and supported through our project, uh, were in fact beneficial to 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 the target groups uh, to cope with the epidemics. Uh, so basically, the resilience that we are building in uh, in the vulnerable populations through our project uh, helped these these people to be more uh, resilient to 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 the shock uh, and uh, uh, you know to um, maintain access to markets uh, besides or uh, in despite uh, the, the situation. So basically, it's a confirmation that what we are doing, basically enhancing resilience uh, to, to, to vulnerable groups, uh, help also in, in, this, uh, in this situation.
0: Thanks to Matteo Marchisio from China. Now we move on to IFAD's operations in Pakistan, where we hear from Hubert Bwaghad, country director for Pakistan. I asked him how COVID-19 has affected Ifad's operations with smallholder farmers in the country.
8: I would say for sure, you know, uh, this uh, COVID-19 has slowed down, you know, uh, our activity, I would say by 30, 35 percent this year. I hope uh, that we will come back to a normal uh, situation uh, as soon as possible. I hope uh, most of the farmer will be able to uh, catch up with the situation and to ensure good uh, harvest uh,
0: this year. One of the projects IFAD supports is the Innovations Transforming Agriculture and Rural Livelihoods project. Started in 2019, the project has been working with women in Gilgit, Baltistan, but it's already returning results that show how resilience built in can support rural communities during a global pandemic. I asked Hubert to tell me more.
8: We introduced through this economic transformation initiative Gigit Balistan vertical farming, uh, benefiting uh, specifically to uh, vulnerable women. So, this started last year. And this year, despite the COVID-19 and uh, through this awareness campaign and standard operation uh, procedure issued by the government, uh, they were able to continue and uh, the activity, to develop the activity to uh, secure their, their income. Can you explain
0: to me a little bit more about when you say vertical farming?
8: That means that traditionally uh, the woman was doing some gardening But the result of the production was quite limited. Through the project, they have benefited from greenhouses and uh, irrigation system, which allow them to to produce mainly tomato and cucumber. So we focus uh, on these two crops because it was the highest demand uh, in the market. We provided them uh, technical advice, some improved seeds, And there was also organized, you know, extension services and uh, close monitoring. The incomes multiplied by nine, nine uh, in average, to this woman for the same type of uh, work, because it has uh, limited the risk through the irrigation uh, system and through the technical advisors. And because also, you know, the market was uh, very keen to have this type of product that was... uh, Harmonise and better in line with expectation of the consumer.
0: So would you say that this work that's been done with the women's groups there and in, in supporting them in vertical farming has made them more resilient to the crisis as it's hit now?
8: Absolutely, because uh, they have been able to increase significantly their incomes. It has created as well a social uh, link, and they have developed a new way to uh, commercialise through, uh, for example, Facebook or or over uh, it system so uh, now they are, they are more aware about uh, what is happening uh, they have more uh, capacity to uh, resist to
0: any uh, any shock they are more informed thanks to uber and all our colleagues across asia You can find out more about what IFAD is doing in its operations to build farmers' resilience in Asia and around the world by going to www.ifad.org. All these interviews are now available in Arabic, French and Spanish at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Coming up, we have more amazing stories from Antonio Rota on just how important livestock can be. You're listening to Farms Food Future, and now we rejoin IFAD's livestock specialist, Antonio Rotta. Antonio has worked with rural communities across the globe and has a wealth of stories of how investing in livestock can bring human results.
2: Uh, we always think about livestock in terms of um, food, but livestock is also a fiber and one story, very briefly, that uh, really impressed me is the story that uh, we had in Tajikistan with a group of women very isol- isolated in the mountain area producing mohair uh, fiber and more recently, uh, Kashmir or Kashgora fiber. Well. We, we always say that small livestock, often people say that the small livestock producer cannot get quality products on the market. Well, those women were able to produce one of the finest uh, fiber and uh, uh, processing them and s- organize themselves in such a way that they were selling those uh, fiber in United States for $400 per, per kilo. And uh, it took IFAD and uh, the, the, the enthusiastic people involved eight years to bring from a stage of um, where this uh, fine fiber were almost neglected to a stage where there were, these women were able to organize themselves through DHL through video conferencing, through uh, opening bank account, through, to sell those products uh, and, and get the recognition of the quality of the products. Another story could be in Senegal, where uh, I lived for two years and uh, with our project um, in, uh, in the center of Senegal, we were working with women in a small older poultry production. Again, it took very passionate, enthusiastic colleagues in Senegal to bring uh, uh, women into organization. And passing from women keeping few chicken, where most of most of them were dying of Newcastle disease, to a a, a very well organized. Value chain where uh, mortality were reduced, where um, I I believe, if I recall well, they were they were making two thousand five hundred francs per women uh, per household, which allowed some of these uh, to buy other animal or start other activities like uh, issuing, buying a sewing machine and, and producing dress or even invest into a, uh, a better housing, let's put it in this way. In any case, let me, let me say this. I always say that when we invest uh, in supporting livestock production, there is an immediate um, return in terms of Household food security I work in Afghanistan and uh, in in our in our um, assessment we we learned that fifty percent of the egg produced were consumed at home, that destitute people could finally put a plastic sheet on on the windows when at minus twenty five I can tell you is freezing by selling eggs when they could buy shoes for children that were go- were going barefoot i mean you see that you can with maybe is is a little thing for somebody but for some people um it's it's is a life changer i will never forget that woman woman that came to me once and say antonio you know i could save 1 with this month i say Wow, congratulations. Yes, and she was so proud because she said, I'm living out I'm widow, my my wife in Afghanistan, my my husband has been killed and I was I was living out of charity. And now I can save $1 per month. So, re- give a little bit back of dignity to to some people and not always looking at profit and uh, is sometimes more rewarding, one of the most rewarding uh, elements of of my work in IFAD.
0: Thanks to IFAD's Antonio Rota speaking to Farm's Food Future. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farm's Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, and our reporter, Julia Gimaraic, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farm's Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we also have Arabic, French and Spanish versions of this podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. And don't forget... We want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform. And please rate us. We'll be back at the end of August with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson, and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening.